Lord, what a blessing it is to walk through this book of creation and blessing as we have over these past nine years at times and to see your hand in every step of your people's lives. And as we wrap up the gospel according to Joseph today, we pray that we would see even more so the reality of your grace and truth so that we might walk today as your people knowing you and following you with great confidence. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned at the welcome, it's hard to believe that we started Genesis in 2012 at, at Bay Middle School. And we went through Genesis 1 to 11, creation and blessing. We went through 12 to 23, Abraham. We went through 24 to 25, Isaac. 26 to 33, Jacob. And so today we wrap up this wonderful passage of Joseph. It's been a marvelous journey this fall that's been so rich and speaks beautiful truths into our lives. And so if you've missed any of them, I encourage you to go back on the sermon podcast. You can, you can find them there. But today as we wrap them up, we see two great themes that are so relevant for every, every Christ follower today. We see the theme of assurance in Christ, and we see the theme of the hope of the resurrection. Let's look at these, shall we? First, let's set the scene here. What's going on here that the brothers are freaking out, all right? Because that's what they're doing, all right? Well, their dad, Jacob Israel, has died. At the end of chapter 49, Jacob finished commanding his sons. He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Verse 33 of chapter 49. So the old man has blessed and commanded his sons, and he breathes his last, and then he's gone. And the verse 1 of chapter 50, which we didn't have read this morning by Steve, it says, then Joseph fell on his father's face and he wept over and kissed him. So Joseph's grieving that his father, his beloved father, has, has gone on to the Lord. But the striking thing here is it's not just Joseph's family who grieves over Jacob. It's all of Egypt. For verse 3 of chapter 50 says, the Egyptians wept for him for 50 days. Excuse me, 70 days. 70 days, Egypt wept for Jacob. Th that is a remarkable outpouring of affection. And this is another evidence of the remarkable change that God can make even in old people. Don't talk to me that God can't use you. Don't talk to me about God's not at work in your life. This was a miserable old man. He, he said, my days are few and evil. And he came to Egypt in that state mentally. And yet, if God can make Jacob such a blessing to the Egyptians, then he's able to make you a blessing to the people around you, whatever your difficulties and sorrows may be. And Jacob stands as a wonderful testimony of what God can do even in the winter season of our lives. But that's not what this text is primarily about. This text, that's the scene, but the text is primarily about 
God's people being reassured and having assurance of their salvation, and two, the hope of the resurrection. Let's look at these. First, the reality of assurance. All right, their dad's dead, and they're thinking, uh-oh, maybe, just maybe, Joseph may turn against us now that dad is dead. Verse 15, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the, all the evil that we did to him. Well, last week we learned that now at this point, 17 years had passed since chapter 45. What a day that was when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and their first response to finding that their brother that they had hated was now in a position of power they were dismayed, but Joseph said to them, come near to me, please. He walked them through the whole story of what had been done to him and then what God had done for him. And it says in verse 15 of chapter 45, then Joseph kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Joseph's love was lavished upon his brothers. He cared for them, provided for them and their families. So do you see after 17 years how deep the suspicion goes? After 17 years, his brothers are still wondering, maybe in his heart of hearts, he still is going to get back at us. They're not doubting that Joseph loved them 17 years ago. They're doubting that he loved them today. So the brothers speak about, all the evil that we did. They owned it. And they're wondering, even though he had expressed forgiveness, would it come back to, to haunt them? And they caused the, this caused doubt in their minds about their reconciliation with their brother Joseph. You know, this is a common experience in the Christian life for many. You come to Christ 17 years ago, Seven years ago, 70 years ago, you trusted him as your Savior and Lord. Christ forgave you. You're reconciled with him. You've been walking with him. He's guarded with you. He's provided for you. But then something hard happens in your life and you wonder, is God punishing me for that evil I did all those years past? Why, why would someone say that to themselves? Because somewhere deep in your heart, in your deep awareness of your own sinfulness, there lurks a suspicion. What God is really going to do is to pay you back for the evil that you've done. Here you are, a Christ follower, a child of God, forgiven and reconciled, but if I asked you, are you sure you're going to heaven? Some of you would more than likely say, because this has been my experience, well, I hope so. You know, can anybody really know, Gene? The reason you would say, I hope so, that in your heart of hearts, you're not really sure. You would like to think that that will happen, but you're not confident about it. You really don't have the peace that surpasses all understanding. You're hoping for the best, and the problem is actually common among 
many Christ followers today. And if this is your experience, you're not alone. It's usually referred to as the problem of assurance. A person is forgiven and reconciled to God. They've been baptized. They've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but they're not sure that God's okay with them. You fear that God may harbor some ill will towards you and that in the end he's going to get you. Joseph's brothers give us a perfect picture of this problem. It's been 17 years, so they're afraid that all this kindness, now that the old man is gone, in the end, Joseph will hate them and repay them for what they've done. How, as a Christian, do you deal with this? How can you establish assurance and confidence in your standing before God as his son or his daughter, who's truly forgiven, truly reconciled through Jesus Christ? It's all here in this story, right? Four points about God's assurance for his people. Number one, our assurance in Christ rests on his love for you, not your performance. The brother sent a message to Joseph that before he died, Jacob had given this command. Verse 17. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because of the evil they did to you. Then in verse 9, after sending the message, they come in person and they offer themselves to Joseph as his servants. I want you to see how Joseph responds in verse 17. What does it say? Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He wept because his own brothers really didn't believe that he loved them. You know, if you really love someone, they don't believe that you love them, it hurts, right? It's painful. Think about this in relation to God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the God who is. This is the God who has done for you in Jesus Christ. Think of the grief in the heart of God when you find it so hard that he loves you. Man, if your wife comes up to you and says, honey, do you love me? Please don't say, yes, sweetheart, you're a great cook. <laughs> yes, yeah, sweetheart, you do a great job keeping all the bills for me so I don't have to do it. Yeah, honey, you're beautiful. You're stunning. Of course I love you. You know? <laughs> Someone's in trouble. <laughs> you know, just like Deuteronomy 7 God looked at his people, Israel, and said, it's not because you were so massive in number. It's not that you were so powerful. It's not that you were so wealthy. It's not that you were so good looking. It's not that you were so obedient to me that I loved you. I love you because I love you. And that's God's message to us, dear friends. He loves us because he loves us. John Owen said, The greatest sorrow and a burden you can lay on the Father is the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. That's a wound to the heart of God. 
after all this, do you still not believe? He loves you because he loves you. And men, the proper answer to your wives is, honey, I love you because I love you for who you are. That's the first thing about our insurance. It's based on his love, not our performance. Secondly, our assurance in Christ is based on his authority. Notice what Joseph says to them in verse 19. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? The brothers are afraid because they think Joseph might get back at them, that he may pay us back for the evil that we did. But Joseph is saying, paying back evil is something God does. I don't do that. I don't have that authority. It's not my job to right the wrong that was done to me. Now in this, Joseph gives us a marvelous example. We are never to pay back individually for evils that are done to us. The government has a response, but we have an individual response. Paul writes about this in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Joseph lived years before Paul ever wrote that. But he already knows the principle. Dealing with evil belongs to God, and I'm not God, and so you have nothing to worry about from me, guys. Don't fear. For am I in the position of God? The real issue when we sin is not what others will do to us, it's what God may do to us. Jesus comes into the world. He's in the place of God. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What Jesus says is what God says. What Jesus does is what God does. He goes to the cross and bears our sins and his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24. This is the great argument of Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It's God who justifies. God is the one who said that your sins are forgiven, that you're reconciled to him. God for, has forgiven you, and God did all this. And he did it on the basis of what his son did upon the cross for each and every one of you. And this Jesus sits right now next to the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. Who can bring any charge against you? You can bring charges against you. Satan can bring charges against you. But the Father has justified you through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says to you, I'm in the place of God. And when the Father has justified you basis on my atoning work upon the cross for you, you have nothing to fear. No one can condemn you. Therefore, assurance is based on that authority. Third, our assurance in Christ rests on his goodness. Verse 20 the most famous verse in, in, gen, in the whole story of Joseph. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's goodness proved greater than all of the brothers' sin against Joseph. As often as they thought about their sin, the brothers would feel grief and sorrow. But Joseph says to them, Look, here's what you did, but look at what God did. You meant it for evil, 
God meant it for good. Now, evil is very real. We all know that. But God's on the throne, and that means evil will never have the last word, ever. And if you look at the story of Joseph, and from the perspective of what the other people did in this story, it's a story of one evil after another. His brothers hated him. He really didn't do anything wrong. And then they sold him off as a slave. He's carted off to Egypt in Potiphar's house. Look at what Potiphar's wife did. She seduced him, and he didn't fall for it. Then she lied against him and caused him to be put into prison. Look at the cupbearer. He received blessing from Joseph and then forgot all about him. When he could have done something to help Joseph, but he didn't. If you look at your own life, you can probably come up with some evils that have been inflicted upon you. Done against you. People who've hurt you, disappointed you, and let you down. Joseph is fully aware of all the evils that were done against him. You meant it for evil, but Joseph's mind is also filled with something far greater. Rather, someone who is far greater, by far, for God meant it for good. Joseph looks beyond what his brothers did and recognized the sovereignty of God in his life. Beyond what Potiphar's wife did, beyond what the cupbearer did or didn't do, and says, look at what God did and all the people who have been wonderfully saved. Out of all the pain comes a life that looks like Jesus. Therefore, Paul could write that great chapter of Romans chapter 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is the good in all those things that work together in the lives of those who love God? The answer is in verse 29 of chapter 8 of Romans. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's purpose for our lives, brothers and sisters, is not that we will all be healthy, wealthy, and wise as we savor the joys of life in a trouble-filled world. God's great purpose is to multiply the image of the Son that he loves in you. Heaven will be filled with a great company of people from every nation and background who have that in common. They all reflect the image and the beauty of Jesus Christ. They're all filled with his goodness and patience and faithfulness and kindness and love. How does God do that? He works through every circumstances of our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to conform us to the image of his Son, to all who trust in him. Therefore, he uses it all. And fourth and finally, it's his goodness. We also, our assurance in Jesus Christ rests on his promises. He says in verse 21, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. These are the exact words that we heard last week in chapter 45, verse 11. 
that Joseph made to his brothers. Brothers, I gave you my word. I gave you my promise. I will be good to you. I'll provide for you. And we have a reminder each and every week, not only in the word of the good news, but at the table each and every week. We hear the words from Matthew 26, likewise after supper, Jesus took the cup. And when he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink this all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Why do we do that? That we're reminded of his promises to us. That he does love us. We need to be reminded of these promises. See our own sins and recognize that God has covered them in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, all kind of fears, when we lose sight of that, all kind of fears rush in. We wonder if God really loves us. We're not sure of how it will be with us. But we're reminded as we come to the Lord's table, it's not on our performance, but it's truly on his and his promise to us. Because our assurance rests on his love, his authority, his goodness, and his promises. All of these are held before you today and through the table so that your heart can be set at rest in his presence and you can be at peace with him and one another with great joy because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. John, the youngest disciple who is the only male still at the, at the foot of the cross when our Lord died, a few years later, at 90-ish years old, wrote these words to assure the church. He says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Do you have the Son? If you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you have it. <laughs> it's in you by the power of the Holy Spirit alone. We can do nothing. It's all been done by him. And it rests on that promise, and that's the testimony which we can stand on. So that's the four parts of assurance. That's the great theme of assurance we see in this passage. But it doesn't stop there. It gets even better than that. Because he gives us the hope of the resurrection in verses 22 to 26. When he says, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. It's pretty striking to me, thinking about it this week, that Genesis ends with two funerals. You know, it ends with the funeral of Jacob and then Joseph. And I've said, borrowing from Keller, that the Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. But here in Genesis, it begins in a garden and ends in a coffin. The last words of this great book that begins with creation, the gift of life in the Garden of Eden is he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph dies in Egypt, not the promised land. For all the blessing of God that we enjoy in this world, we have not, like Joseph, 
experience the joy and blessing that Adam and Eve had in the cool of the garden, walking with God in the cool of the day. Paul says, while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. We know him by faith, but we do not yet know him by sight. For all the joy of his presence, we have not yet seen his face. And Joseph knows that he will die in Egypt, but his life will not end there. The life of a Christ follower does not end in a coffin. Death is the separation of the soul and the body. And when a person dies, the body is laid in the ground to rest, but their soul goes into the presence of the Savior. To rest, to be away from the body, is to be at home with the Lord. And in Hebrews 11, which is our God-given commentary on the lives of the Old Testament patriarchs, it tells us that Abraham, along with Isaac and Jacob, were looking for a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. Talking about the resurrection that they were looking forward to. They knew that they were strangers and exiled on the earth. They knew that they had a future in heaven, and they saw it from afar. What's really significant here is that what Joseph says is not about his soul, but about his body. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. There's a glorious future, not only for the soul, but also for the body of every Christian believer. There is a, this is revealed fully in the New Testament, but you have hints of it in the Old. Job said, though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Meaning, God will give me flesh, bones, skin, eyes, ears, and I will myself behold God. I will behold him with my own eyes, body and soul. Hebrews says about Abraham, he considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. Hebrews eleven nineteen. Abraham believed in a God who raises from the dead. And Joseph's words at the end of Genesis indicate that he was anticipating resurrection as well. The request was made and the promise was kept. For 400 years later, it passed between the book end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And during that time, the family of Jacob, which began with 70 people, multiplied. And God blessed them and made them a great nation. And they were cruelly oppressed. And in the time of Moses, they came out during the Exodus. And when they, let, they leave in the Exodus, we read, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And at the end of Joshua, Joshua 24 as for the bones of Joseph, when the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried him at Shechem. That's a long funeral procession. <laughs> but isn't it a wonderful picture of hope? God's people carrying Joseph's bones for hundreds of miles, a coffin. How, 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 how would you like coffin duty? You know? <sighs> All right, here we go. 
you're carrying Joseph for 40 years. Through all that time, they were saying, we're going to a better land. There's a future that's not only for us, but for all who believe the promises of God. And Christ will come to take us to a better country. And when he comes, the dead in Christ shall raise first. The souls of those who are with Jesus will come with him and their bodies will be raised to join with their spirit in the gift of a resurrection body. And those, we who are alive, will be caught up to meet the Lord and our bodies will be changed at the twinkling of an eye into a resurrection body as well. At the sound of the last trumpet, for life for the believer does not end in a coffin. And what is so surprising to me as we look back over the story of Joseph is what a remarkable person he was and what a remarkable life that he lived. He overcame the most extraordinary difficulties and he's yet marked with incredible success. He served as the vice regent of Egypt. He saved the lives of thousands of people, including his family, to whom the promises of God were going to come through to the whole world. But when you come to the New Testament, very little is said about Joseph. Of all that Joseph said and did, the one thing that's recorded about him in Hebrews 11, the last word is all we have is about his bones. It says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Hebrews eleven twenty two. You see, what matters more than the things you achieve in your life is where you, will, where you will be after your death. You may have the greatest accomplishments in this world, but what will that be on the day that you die? What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? When Joseph came to his last days, the thing that mattered was not what he suffered and not what he achieved. It was that he had put his hope in the promise of God and he knew that he was destined for a better land in which he would enjoy a better life. The book of Genesis ends in a coffin in Egypt. Sin and death have covered the world. And even Joseph, the most godly person of his day, is caught up in that pain and loss. But here's the hope of the gospel. Joseph points us to Jesus, our Savior, who is not in a coffin. His tomb is empty. He is risen. And to all who believe in him, Jesus Christ says, because I live, you also will live. And all who are in Christ, in life and in death, are safe and secure. And that's a game changer. Let us live that changed life. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to walk through these passages and see your good purposes. That we can be assured that we have abundant life and eternal life in you, Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have the hope of the resurrection as well. Lord, we too will one day be raised and we pray that we look forward to that day. But until that day comes, may we be faithful to your call to live a life transformed by this good news 
that we are forgiven by the ultimate vice regent, God on the throne, Jesus Christ. And because of that forgiveness, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.